And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's the example of Paul's imprisonment. Oh, what good does it do if Paul, the great evangelist, is stuck in prison? Ah, it seems like it did good for everybody. Because they were bolder. They saw Paul's faith, his constancy, and they were more empowered to speak the word. And they did so without fear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, to speak your word boldly and without fear. Well, they saw Paul in prison, and the same thing could happen to them. The same thing could happen to any of us if we were bold enough, I guess, in certain parts of this world, to speak the word of God, to tell others about Jesus Christ. We too could be imprisoned. But yet, even though the cost was high, there was not the fear of that cost. There was only, apparently, the peace and the confidence to do the things that you had laid out so that your kingdom might flourish, so that the gospel would go forward. And Lord, we we live in a world that is much safer than than the world Paul was in for Christians. We live in a country that that we can do these things. We can walk out on the corner and preach all that we want. Or we can come here and worship in in freedom. And, And we rejoice in these things, Lord, but we pray also that our hearts would be mindful that with this great freedom comes this great responsibility to do the things of Christ, to speak the things of Christ, to demonstrate them in our lives, in our families, in all that we do, and not be afraid to tell others what is most important in our lives. So, Lord, we pray that this week you would open doors for us, open our eyes to those things as well, that we would not just see the opportunity, but we would take the opportunity to share what is really important with us. Lord, we also remember and give thanks the blessings of those of us who had godly fathers and the examples of godly men in our lives in general, how they teach us the things of the word, how they live by example, and how, Lord, that we may hope to walk in their footsteps, that others might come after us and want to live the example of faith that we have followed. Lord, we come to you not just according to the example of faith of Jesus Christ, but the one from whom our faith emanates, the one who gave his life that we might know this gift of salvation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come to you and we pray the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It is our privilege to come and to worship our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask the ushers to come forward at this time. 
that we might return to him some of the blessings he has bestowed upon us, that the kingdom may go forward. in your provision and providence and in your mercy you have seen to bless us in a variety of ways. Lord we ask that you would take these gifts 
use them for your purposes that others might know the things of Christ, that others might know the joy and the peace that comes through him, that they might know satisfaction to the hunger within their lives. They may know it only comes through Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Bibles to Acts chapter 28 today. 
just as an aside, <clears throat> we had a service for Vernon Ivy this week as he has pa- passed away, and, and, and we put this banner here in particular because that's how Vernon and Belinda met, apparently. Uh, Dave Reynolds uh, gave them a, gave uh, uh, Vernon a task as an engineer type to make a banner, and he said, why don't you talk to Belinda? She's kind of into art. Maybe she can help you. Now, I don't know whether that was Dave's plan or Providence or whatever, uh, but they kind of fit together very nicely. Um, so we're just uh, uh, sorry at his passing, but we are, it's one of those things, we're joyful at his faith and the evidence within his life of all that the Lord met, meant to him. All right, we turn to Acts chapter 28 today, and this is the last chapter that's written in Acts. Now, next week, we're going to get Acts 29, uh, so you just come and see that one, okay? So if you're able, would you stand as I read the Word of God? Acts 28, I'll begin in 16 and go to the end of the chapter. Heavenly Father, come upon us today so that our eyes and our hearts would be open and ready to receive what you have for us, that we might see from the example of Paul and all that he has said, that we might see how we are called to live, that we might be understanding of the power that is available to us through the Holy Spirit to do the things that you lay before us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And it happened that after three days, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. 
And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. Well, we come to the end of the book of Acts, and the narrative of Paul's life and, and his concern with ministry, and it seems that it kind of ends with a fizzle instead of a bang. We would like something big to happen here, but it just kind of goes, and Paul was in prison for two years. But remember, this is a book not about Paul. This is a book about the gospel of Christ and its spread. So the gospel of Christ spread according to the sovereign purposes of God, and Paul was a part of that spread of the gospel. So really, uh, it's interesting, he spends two years as a prisoner in his own rented house, a house that, that he rented, there's a guard next to him, preaching the gospel. So perhaps it is a fitting way to end uh, the spread of the early church by watching how it continued to spread, even though Paul was a prisoner within Rome. Now, I was going to give you this long history about uh, the state of Rome at this time. Suffice to say that Rome was a cesspool, okay? Uh, There were some two million residents, a million of them were slaves, um, and only out of those, that other million that were citizens, only about fifty to 75,000 had the power and money within Rome. Everybody else lived in the streets or as paupers, and they had basically nothing. So, you know, it was uh, all the bad things that were happening in Rome. Uh, really, there were lots of bad things, let's put it that way. And Paul enters this city in an effort to bring the gospel there. I mean, Paul, uh, Paul had been told very clearly by the Lord, you are going to Rome, okay? You are going to get there, and you will take my gospel there. And that's what he did. And into that cesspool came the good news of Jesus Christ. So this last section that we look at describes two meetings Paul had with specific people in Rome, the Jewish leaders and then a group of leaders and lay people together. Now, out of those two million people that lived in Rome, free and slave, there were somewhere between seven and twelve synagogues at that time. So there was not a very large Jewish population there, but yet Rome was really the the hub of the world at that time. So Paul brings out three points first in and to with the Jewish leaders. Now these are the leaders, these aren't the lay people at this meeting, just the leaders. And he, he His first point in verse 17, and it happened that after three days he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, number one, brother, brethren, though I had done nothing against our people, there was no offense that he had committed against Israel. And he says, our people, because he says, I'm one of you, understand, and I have committed nothing. So these charges that have been brought against me are false charges. Secondly, verse 18, and when they had examined me, they were willing to release me. The Romans found no guilt in Paul. They found no guilt in Paul, nothing to which uh, could cost him his life. And really, the only reason he is there in Rome is because he appealed to Caesar. 
Now, I say the only reason, humanly speaking, the other reason he is in Rome is because God said, you're going to Rome. So he was going there, and he has appealed to Caesar, and there he sits waiting for two years um, for Caesar to hear his case and and never does. Now, the other issue, the, the third one, is not really laid out here for us, but Paul kind of insinuates it. Paul did not bring any counter charges against the people that made false charges against him. Okay, it's part of, uh, you know, it's kind of common in our society for people, you immediately sue me, so what am I going to do? I'm going to counter sue you and make sure that I'm trying to get to you because it's not my fault, it's your fault. Well, they have raised false charges against Paul and Paul doesn't raise any charges against them. Okay, he simply sticks with the truth and says, this is, I'm going to live and die with the truth. You may make up all these things, but this is what is real. This is what is true. So uh, jump down to verse 21. And they said, we've, we've not received letters from anybody concerning you or, or anything. So we really don't know anything about this stuff. Uh, but we do desire to hear from you and what your views are because we've heard some negative things about what, he termed, what they termed the sect. And that would be uh, Christianity, known as the way or the sect of the Nazarene at this time. That would be these things about Jesus because at the end of 22, it is spoken against everywhere. Now, this is the gospel that is changing the world, and the Jewish people here, and Jewish leaders here in, in Rome are saying it's spoken against. Everything we hear about it is negative. And they were the gatekeepers, so to speak, the theological gatekeepers for the Jewish population in Rome. So anything that came to Rome, such as Paul, or any, any person who was, who was bringing this teaching, it was their job as the theological gatekeepers to sit and to examine it and to see if it was valid or not. So they said, oh, we're going to come back and hear what you have to say. Well, not only do they come back, but some of the leading lay people come back as well. Verse 23, and when they had set a date for him, they came back. Back, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. evening. Now, Paul, Paul had stamina, okay, from morning until evening. If you remember uh, back a couple chapters he comes to Jerusalem and he is preaching and he begins to preach at about dinner time and preaches and discusses things until about midnight and then there's this young boy who's sitting in the window and he's all exhausted, falls asleep, falls out of the window, goes down, Paul goes down, raises him from the dead, comes back and continues to preach Okay, until early morning. I mean, this is, didn't I, if, what, if you paid me enough, wouldn't I preach all night? Isn't that, didn't I say something like that? I, I, there's not enough money to, to do that. So this is common in Paul, okay? He loves to sit and interact with the things of Jesus Christ. Now, notice what Paul does not do. If you remember, he was shipwrecked on Malta, and again and again, people would come to him, and they would get healed. So Paul has just been out healing all these people on the Isle of Malta. Now he comes to Rome, and what does he do? The Jewish leaders come, the Jewish leading lay people come, they hear him preach, and he does not do any miracles. 
He does not heal anybody that it is recorded in Scripture here. He does not cast out any demons or anything. He simply preaches the Word of God. Now, you would think that these people are coming to him, and, and this is an important time. It is an important city. You would think if it was necessary for the gospel to be understood, then Paul would give accompanying miracles, because he certainly had that capacity, but he does not. Here in Rome, he says only the preach word, only the things of God. That's all I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to demonstrate or confirm these things with miracles. I'm simply going to present the fulfillment of all your Old Testament scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. All of those things are fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus Christ. So what does that tell us? Tells us that the preached word or the shared word or the word over the dinner table, the word of God is enough to change a life. It is enough to, to completely transform a life because it is the, through the word of God that the Holy Spirit comes and uses that as the instrument of the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember, as Paul says uh, over in Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. When he talks about all Scripture in context, he's talking about the Old Testament. He said this portion, this Word of God comes from His mouth. It is inspired according to the Lord. Now, what did Paul preach? Well, it says here, from both the Law of Moses and from the prophets. So, much like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, remember at the end of Luke, he goes back and recounts all the things from the Old Testament. It's probably what Paul did. I mean, there are probably some high points that he pointed out. Maybe Psalm 16, both Paul and Peter use Psalm 16 and quote that. Uh, maybe Psalm 22, where it talks about crucifixion. Some, some 600 years before crucifixion was actually invented, it describes a crucifixion. Maybe he goes to Isaiah 53 and talks about the suffering servant and, and the one who would come and give his life for, for those uh, whom the Lord had given him. But Paul is taking them through the Old Testament passages and pointing to their fulfillment in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe he went and gave them an outline of the book of Romans, so to speak, that he would be writing, pointing to all the Old Testament passages, the fulfillment of Christ. And remember, Paul, Paul just loves these people. He is one of them. He is, comes from that world and that culture. And he even says that I would be willing to be accursed for all eternity if my people would come to Christ. Now, how many of us would be willing to spend eternity in hell so that everybody else in this room could go to heaven? Mm, boy, isn't that tough, huh? Because if we, if we actually believe in hell and the terribleness of it, which we do, and it is terrible from all the things we can find in Scripture, would you be willing to endure that for all eternity that these people could go and know the bliss of heaven. That is the love that Paul has for his people, Israel. Okay. So, Paul gives this to them. And then they begin to debate and argue amongst themselves. Verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another. Now some have come to belief. 
Some have come to faith because of the words that Paul has spoken. Not the miracles, he didn't do any, just the words about Scripture and about Jesus Christ that Paul had spoken. But most did not. Verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Now this is, this is a very important little phrase here. This one parting word. This is the last biblical abandonment of Israel. The last biblical abandonment of Israel. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. Now, Paul has done miracles before. Jesus did miracles. The other apostles did them. And what they saw them, they did not believe them. They did not impact their hearts. They preached the word. Some fell on deaf ears. They just did not hear it. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. Now this is Isaiah, the prophet who's the messianic prophet, but we see this often in the Old Testament. Okay? They, they hear the word, they just don't believe it. They are not willing to repent and turn and come back to the Lord. They want to seek after the gods of Baal, the gods they make with their own hands. And Paul takes that passage from Isaiah and applies it here to Israel in the first century and says, the Lord has moved on for the time. The Lord has said, from now on, I am going to turn to the Gentiles, verse 28. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And put yourself in Paul's position. I mean, he loves these people, willing to give up his own salvation for them. He understands. Paul was Jewish. They are Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And God had promised the word to them. And now the Lord says, I'm going to go tell it to the Gentiles. They will also listen. They will also listen. Now, what does this mean for Israel? What does this mean? This, this little time where, where the, it says, okay, we've had enough. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. We're going to take a quick review of this out of Romans chapter 9 through 11. So flip over there and we'll do this very quickly as we go through these passages. While Israel was cut off because of unbelief, the Gentiles are grafted in. But God did not reject his people in total, those people whom he foreknew. Okay? And I'm just going to read a couple passages for you. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Then he quotes that passage from Elijah there. One day Israel will be grafted back in. Okay? One day. For God is able to graft them back in. Romans chapter 11, verse 23. And Paul explains that this is a partial hardening of the people of Israel. And what is the marker where that partial hardening will be lifted? It's when the full number of Gentiles have, been, have entered into the kingdom. And after that it says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. But understand what all Israel means. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Turn to Romans 9, verse 6. This is how 
Paul outlines what happens to Israel. What happens to Israel, the Jewish people. Now understand Romans 9, we'll start in verse 6. <clears throat> no one is ever saved except by the electing grace of Jesus Christ. No one is saved except through the electing grace of Jesus Christ. The choice of salvation is always with God. If God elects, you will believe. We talked about irresistible grace in Sunday school for just a moment. If God calls you by name, you will believe. Chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So when said all Israel will be saved, well, who will be saved? Those who are called according to the purposes of God, those he extends his grace to. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there is also Rebekah, and on and on and on through Scripture. And jump to verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He will save those who are his, without a doubt. We cannot rely upon our own works. We cannot rely upon our heritage. Neither can Israel rely upon their heritage. They must rely upon Jesus Christ. Second, rejection of the Messiah by a large portion of Israel has been prophesied in the Old Testament on several occasions. Chapter 9 again, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who will resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, also from among the Gentiles. So we see that the rejection of the Messiah is foretold and that Gentiles will be coming into the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 1 says, talks about a remnant being saved, a remnant. Number three, rejection is prophesied, but it is the fault of the individual. Now, this is one of those strange things in Scripture that, that I would love to say makes sense to the human mind, but sometimes we just have to take it as it comes. Salvation is the work of God. If you reject Christ, it is your fault. Now, that sounds like they are exclusive to one another. But yet that is what we find in Scripture. And we see it again and again. It is a function of a hard heart. So rejection was prophesied, but it is the fault of the unbeliever. Chapter 9, verse 30. Whom he is... Hmm, let's get chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? 
But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They pursued it by works. Okay, It was their own fault. They did not pursue the things of faith. They pursued the things of work. I can make myself righteous before God. That was the view. God said, no, that is not correct. That is not correct. Fourth, flip over to chapter 11. The good news is that not all Jews reject Jesus Christ. Not all Jews reject Jesus Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? Well, may it never be. Paul does, he uses that a couple times. He asks a question and then says, you've got to be kidding me. Of course not. For I too am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. So some will be saved is a very clear example. So as an example, another example of this would be number six uh, or, or number five. Remember Elijah. He has done this great work on the mountain and battled the prophets of Baal. And then he runs off and he's sitting in the cave and he thinks, I'm the only faithful one left. And then the voice of the Lord comes to him and says what? 7,000. There are 7,000 who haven't bent the knee to Baal yet. Okay? There are my people that are still there that I have preserved. Okay? So the Lord has his remnant that he will save. That he will save. Number six. Yes, God is moving primarily among the Gentiles. But even that is for the good of the Jews. Look at verse chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Well, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Okay, the grafting of the Gentiles is one of those things that the Jews are going to look at and go, how is God working in in their lives now and make them jealous for the things of God and desirous of the things of Jesus Christ at the time of the Lord's choosing? And then the last one, verse 22, number 7, it says, in the end all Israel will be saved. Now we have to define all Israel, we have to go back to number 1 and said. Those according, are saved according to the electing grace of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. He's speaking about the Jews. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Back into the God who first called them and called Abraham out of the wilderness and said, I'm going to make for you a people. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. When the full number of Gentiles have come in, then this partial hardening of the hearts of Israel will be lifted. The gospel goes to the Gentiles 
they will listen. Flip back to the last word in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. The last word in Acts, and it's written this way in the Greek. The New American Standard in, in the pews translates it perfectly, okay? Even though it sounds kind of out of place. Verse 28, or verse 31. Preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, comma, unhindered. Unhindered. Luke lays this in almost to say, you know, there's more coming. Look, Paul preaches the gospel unhindered. You can Paul is a prisoner. The gospel is not a prisoner. It is unhindered. There's nothing that can stop it. Now, we miss, there's no appeal to Caesar here. There's no explanation of that. There's no explanation of his release in two years. There's nothing else except Paul's preaching the gospel unhindered. Now, when we look at the big picture of Acts, if you look at the first chapter, let's see, in the the title in your Bible, it says, Acts of the Apostles. The next book we're going to study is Jude. We might call it Acts of the Apostates. Okay? This is the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century. When we get to Jude, we find all these illustrations of those who want to stop the spread of the gospel throughout the age of the church until Christ returns. Again and again and again, we'll find in this little book of 25 verses, the apostates that the church will face. And not just in the first century, but in every century we will face them. So look how Paul en- en- ends the book. Unhindered. Unhindered. That's the spread of the gospel. And as I said, next week, Acts chapter 29, we'll see how the gospel is to spread today unhindered. Let's pray. Lord, in your great mercy, uh, you have shown us through this book again and again Your purposes cannot be thwarted by humans. Your grace is irresistible. If you're going to save us, you're going to save us. We will hear the gospel. Our heart will be changed. We are called to seek after those things. We are called to pursue those things. But you will do the change within us. We see how you have directed the life of Paul. Called him from an enemy of Christ to the great evangelist. You have guided him. You led him in certain directions. Terrible things happened to Paul in his life of ministry. But yet you were there sustaining him through all of these things. Promising to see him through, to get him to Rome. Promising that he will do your work and your business until you are done with him. Lord, we think, what are you doing with us? how you have moved in our lives, how you have shaped and molded us and and allowed things to come into our lives and allowed us to do certain things. Some things were very stupid, other things were very smart, but yet you used them to help mold and shape us so that we might be your instruments for the proclamation of the gospel, that in our lives, as well as Paul, that gospel would be proclaimed unhindered. Don't let us be shy about these things. Don't let us fear anyone but you, Lord, that your gospel would go forward. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's stand and sing the final two stanzas of Have Thine Own Way, number 400. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would have your way with us, that your spirit would so fill us that only Christ they would see within us. They would hear the words from our mouths, see his actions in our hands, that you might call our feet beautiful as they take the good news to those in need. Send us out, Lord, that we may know these things and do these things to your praise and glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.